Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah. This is from our Advent series, An Unexpected King. If you would like to know more about our church, please come check us out at cbcsavannah.com. All right. Well, we have been in a series, we've called it Unexpected King for the last couple weeks. Uh, and so we looked uh, at week one that, that Jesus came from an unexpected family. And that there was hope in the fact that, that he came from a family that's all jacked up, right? And then we saw that there was an unexpected cost, that, that the coming of Jesus kind of throws Mary and Joseph and all those involved life for a loop. And then Clint last week just highlighted that there was unexpected worshipers, that magi, who would be the last people you expect to be there, uh, would be there at the, the worshiping the Christ child in Bethlehem. And today we're going to talk about an unexpected cost. I mean, excuse me, an unexpected opposition uh, as we continue in our narrative. A few weeks ago, um, when, you know, all the leaves had kind of fallen for the most part, there's still some coming, but all the leaves had fallen. And so I got the brilliant idea that I'm going to get on the roof. I'm going to blow off the roof, right? Which is always seems like a great idea, except I, I did it two years ago and I almost died then. And, and so th this is just part of being man, that you forget things like that, and that you're like, oh, I can do that, I did it once. And so I get out my ladder, which literally is about a foot below the roof at its height when I'm on the deck. And so I kind of backwards myself onto the roof, and it just rained the night before, of course. And so it's a little bit wet, and I start kind of edging up a little bit at a time. I get about three feet up, and I start sliding. And then my feet end up hanging off. And I got my oldest at the bottom there, more so with his phone in case he needs to call 911, really. That's, that's, that's not moral support or anything. And, I, and I'm thinking, I'm going to die for some leaves. That's, that's dumb. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. And, um, and so I, I, I get down. I was smart enough to get down. I didn't try it again. I'm, I, you know, kind of stood on the ladder on one foot and trying to get as few leaves as I could get. But my son made a comment to me. He said, Dad, I'll, I'll get up there if you want. I thought... Okay, go ahead. No, no. <laughs> no one's going to miss me, right, if I die. I mean, I'm like Jimmy Stewart. I'm worth more dead than alive, right, you know, kind of thing. But no way am I going to put my son on the roof. I mean, that's what we do as parents. We try to protect our kids from things that will destroy them or hurt them. I, you know, again, for me, okay, no one misses me. But I'm not putting my son in harm's way. I'm not putting him in danger. I'm not putting him on the roof. But as we've worked through these narratives in Matthew, and if you read the narratives in Luke, that's exactly what God the Father has done. He's put his son on the roof. And the question I want to ask and really answer today is this. What was the father thinking? Why would he put his son on the roof? So we're going to look at that today as we continue through Matthew chapter 2, and we'll answer it, and then we'll celebrate it as we continue to sing. Um, and so let's look at this kind of unexpected opposition. Clint kind of unpacked a little bit last week this kind of narrative of the Magi and Herod. Let me just give you a little snapshot into Herod, okay? Here's a picture of old boy. This is his yearbook picture, right? Herod the Great. He lived from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., um, and in 37 B.C., the reason he became king is he led an army of Roman soldiers 
against the city of Jerusalem, and he conquered them. He conquered basically the people he was going to rule. And so Rome really liked this guy, and so they made him kind of a puppet king. He was more like a governor, but he was there, and he kept the peace. And so on one hand, he was super ruthless, but on the other hand, he, tried, he was a good politician. So one of the things he did to kind of keep the Jews happy is he, he, he basically enhanced the current temple. This is a model of the temple he built. This is the temple that Jesus would have been in and preached in, um, right? It was kind of a minuscule thing before that. He kind of made it grand, so he kind of was this weird politician, you know, the bipolar. In one sense, he was greatly feared. On the other sense, he was, he was trying to like, get their favor. But he was a, a ruthless dude, mean-spirited, hated his, just everybody. I mean, he, he, we, we saw last week he killed several of his family members to keep his power. He killed his favorite wife, as he called her, because so he thought she was scheming. He killed one of his sons. Uh, on his death, when he was on his deathbed. In fact, when he was about to die, one of the things he did, we got, he got all the leaders in Israel and he gathered them together and he put them in a room so, and he, they were all to be executed the moment he died so that everyone in Israel would not know who they were mourning for because he knew they wouldn't be crying for him. So he killed all the great leaders and all the key people. That's the kind of guy he was. And so if it's not safe to be a family member of Herod, in fact, Caesar used to joke Back in that day, it was safer to be a pig in Herod's house than an heir, right? And, and there was this little Greek play on words, the word for pig and, and son, there's one letter off, weos and vas in the Greek. And so this kind of saying, it's safer to be a pig because Herod wouldn't eat pork than it to be his own son. So if it's not safe to be a son in Herod's house, what about the one, as last week we looked, who was born to be king of the Jews? Who was born to be king, right? And, and what I want you to think about, just big picture, God could have sent his son at any point in human history. He could have sent Jesus to be born when David was the king. That's the good times, the good old days. He could have sent his son to be born to Solomon or to maybe King Asa or Josiah or Hezekiah or some of these good guys or even maybe after Nebuchadnezzar comes around. But he puts his son under one of the most wicked and feared and hated guys in Israel's history, a sworn enemy. He actually is not even a Jew. He's actually an Edomite. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, okay, the Edomites were sworn enemies of Israel. They came from Esau. Way back, Abraham has Isaac. We sang it the first week, right? Ethan did. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name becomes Israel. His twin brother Esau, he is the father of the Edomites. Jacob is the father of the Israelites. And forever and ever they are fighting. Herod is an Edomite. He's a sworn enemy. Why? Would God send his son? Why would he put him on the roof? Let's keep reading. So the Magi leave. We looked last week. When they departed, behold. Right, so the Magi are gone. They've gone back home. They've tricked Herod. And, and what's going on now is, is Joseph and Mary kind of settling in in Bethlehem. They're building a, a life together. He's probably got his business started. Now he's got a little gold frankincense and myrrh, right? He's all thinking he's secure and they're starting to meet people. And all of a sudden, boom, Matthew draws you in. Behold, he wants you to see it, another dream. Every time Joseph has a dream, bad stuff happens, right? Or in his mind, it rocks his world. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. There is a urgency here. This is not, hey, go down to Egypt, take a cruise on the Nile, go see the pyramids, enjoy yourself. Get up, go, get out now. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. 
right? And you can imagine, Joseph gets up, wakes up, Mary, come, get up. And everyone, you know how it is when you get woke up at three in the morning, you know, and now you're like, gosh, don't wake up the baby. You know, baby Jesus is crying now. Joseph's been loud. Man, what is going on? Pack the stuff. Get, we got to get out of here. Herod is coming. And the reason there is urgency here, y'all, is because once Herod figures out what's going on, it could all be over in about an hour. Remember, Jerusalem is only six miles up the road. It wouldn't take Herod long once he figures out what's going on, send a couple guys down. They wouldn't even have to make it all the way to Bethlehem. Jerusalem's on a hill. Bethlehem's down here. You just walk down the road a little bit, you can see down into Bethlehem to see that caravan of hundreds of camels and all those things that showed up. You could still, you could see if they're there anymore. He could just do a little spot check, go back, send some horses. It can be over in less than an hour. And so they leave at night. They flee at night. They get out. I mean, Joseph's like, get a few things, Get the gold, frankincense, and the myrrh. Make sure you pack them. And let's get out of Dodge. Right? They are marked people. Right? And here's, here's, here's the other thing. God could have sent his son. Why not put him in Caesarea Philippi, a nice little place on the coast? He puts him in Herod's backyard. Six miles away. On purpose. Right? The next verse says, they rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. So they stay a couple years, till 4 BC, till he dies. But look what the second half of the verse says. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. There's a prophecy that Jesus would come out of Egypt. And if it's a prophecy, that means this is on purpose, that God knew this was gonna happen. What I want you to see is God purposely put him in harm's way. He puts him close to Herod. He puts him where he's gonna have to run. He puts him where he's gonna have to get out of Dodge. Right? God put his son on the roof. It was according to the plan. Let's continue. Right? Herod when he saw, when he figured out that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which had been ascertained by the wise men. Probably about, based on the size of Bethlehem at that day, probably about 15 to 20 children. Herod just acting like he is, right? But again, even this was fulfilled, this fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said. Her voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel. Rachel's tomb was actually right outside Bethlehem. She's considered one of the mothers of Israel. She's weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This, this is the place God put his son. And this is just, y'all, just a part of another spiritual battle. There's been a spiritual battle raging since the beginning where the enemy of God, Satan, has been trying to thwart the plan of God. So in the garden, God creates everything perfect. What does Satan do? He tempts Adam and Eve. Right? And then God prophesies that it's gonna be through man, through mankind, that he's gonna redeem. What does Satan do? Genesis 6, he tries to corrupt the human race with these sons of these angels kind of having these half-breed humans. You can read all that in Genesis 6, kind of a weird passage. But then God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So what does Satan do? He tempts everyone to build a tower to heaven. He says, through Abraham and Sarah, I'm gonna bring this Messiah. So what does he do? He has Abraham sell his wife out so that, so that she's no longer with Abraham. So he can thwart Messiah. He has the people go down into Egypt. He tries to get Pharaoh to kill all the males so there can be no deliverer. He takes them into the wilderness. He tries to tempt them to disobey so that they're ineffective. He tries to get them to intermarry so that there's no more Judah. There's no more lines of Israel. Down the line, he tries to get the entire nation destroyed. And a little lady named Esther has to save the day. The enemy of God has always been trying to thwart God's plan. He tries to kill him in Bethlehem. He tries to tempt him in the wilderness. He tries to get his best buddy to say, 
you're not going to be crucified. Don't go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Right? He gets one of his 12 to betray him. The enemy of God has always been trying to thwart the power of God and the plan of God, and yet God puts him right in the middle of all that. He puts him on the roof. And the, so, so the question I want to ask, again, an answer is this. What was the father thinking? Because he didn't, I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. If you did, we got counselors for you. What was the father thinking? And here's the answer. It's real simple. He's thinking about us. What does the angel say? For unto you is born this day a savior. What does the prophet say in Isaiah say? To us a child is born. To us a son is given. He did it for us. This was the plan all along, putting Jesus on the roof. In fact, there's this great parable. I actually prayed about potentially preaching this one instead this week, but I'm not gonna, but I wanna allude to it. Just read it real quick. Jesus, right before he is betrayed, right before he goes to the cross, he's asked a question. He's been doing all these miracles. He's been teaching He's been slamming the Pharisees, and they basically say, who are you? Who gives you the right to do this? Who, who gives you the right to talk to us like this and do all these things? And he asks them a question that they want to answer. He said, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you who I am. But then he does. He tells a parable. He says this. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went out to another, to another country for a while. And they get the imagery. The vineyard is them. All right? The vineyard is Israel. They're the tenants. They're the leaders. So they're supposed to tend to God's, God's vineyard, Israel. He said, when it came time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit in the vineyard. Tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant, but they beat him and treated him safely. Sent another way empty-handed. And then he sent a third, and this one they wounded and cast out. These are the prophets of the Old Testament who they kept showing up and saying, listen to God, listen to God, love God, love God. And they kept rejecting them. The, the owner says, what shall I do? I'll send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they'll listen to him. Perhaps they'll respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And he asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants, give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, knowing it was about them, he said, surely not, no way. That will never happen, God wouldn't do that. And he looked directly at him. This is the way I want you to see. He says this, what then is this that is written? And he quotes one of their psalms, Psalm 118, which is a Hallel psalm. It's a song that they knew very well. It was sung at Passover. It was meant to comfort them in the midst of just in their, when they're now conquered by Rome and God's faithfulness. So they're very familiar. He says, if that's not true, if that's not what God's going to do, then what is this about? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken into pieces. When it falls on anyone, it'll crush them. He says, if, if it's not true that this is going to happen... If this is not the plan, then what does this mean? What does this mean? And they can't answer. And the point is this. This has been the plan all along for the father to put him on the roof, for the one who would be rejected to become the one that everything is built upon. That was what the father was doing. And why did he do it? He was doing it for us. This is what Acts says. This was the plan. This was the, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite and plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. This is what Peter says, right? This is what Jesus says. As, as Moses was lifted up the serpent, I have to be lifted up, right? That, that's been the plan. 
right? That's that you may believe and have eternal life. This has been it all along. What, what was the father thinking when he puts the son on the roof? He was thinking about you. He's thinking about me. And why would he do it? Right after this passage, Jesus tells one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world. He did it for us, and he did it because he loves us. That's what Ethan talked about earlier. It's what we celebrate today. God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only, his only begotten, his one-of-a-kind son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And my one goal for you this morning whether you're a member of CBC, whether you're, you're in town, you know, you came in, you know, like, oh, we're going to get some great weather in Savannah, Georgia. Wrong. Right? But you're, whatever, wherever you are in your life, my one goal for this morning, it's the same goal the Apostle Paul has. This is kind of the, my prayer for you, that you would know, right, that you would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That you would leave this place this morning knowing without a shadow of a doubt that God the Father loves you, period. End of story, right? That you would know that. That you have a God in the Old, and you think, this is, well, that's the God of, the, of, the, of Bethlehem. No, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament, that he loves you. Zephaniah says this, the Lord your God's in your midst, a mighty one, he will rejoice. That you have a God you know, we're rejoicing and singing. You have a God who rejoices over you. That you would, would you would believe that, that you would grasp that, that he will quiet you by his love, and we'll come to that in a second, that he actually sings over you. He will exult over you, not just with like your version of singing, with loud singing, with God singing. That is how God thinks about his people. And that you wouldn't question that, that you wouldn't doubt that, that you would be quieted by that love, that that love would sustain you. And it's not just so we can leave, feel good about ourselves, which is nice, though. When we feel loved, we feel good about ourselves. But it's not so we can be like, yay, God loves me. There's a reason. The Apostle Paul says that the love of Christ compels him. It's not, and he's not talking about his love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for him. That the love of Christ compels, or some translations say sustain, or controls, or motivates. The, the, the love of God is meant to not only comfort, but to, to motivate and sustain us to go and be the church. We experience God's love, and then we go and it sustains us and it moves us in all sorts of ways. And let me just give you some, some, some just practical ways that the love of God is meant to comfort and control and sustain and motivate. When you struggle with anxiety and worry, which is huge, right? It's a huge issue. It's a huge struggle for us. It was an issue for the disciples. What does Jesus tell them? Because we're so worried. What, how am I going to pay for college? Am I going to do a job? Am I going to get married? Am I going to get great, good enough grades to get a scholarship? I'm on my SATs. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, how am I going to pay for, for credit card bills off of Christmas? All these things. And we just worry, 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 worry. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? Y'all. Why y'all so worried about what you're going to eat? Where you're going to live? What you're going to drive? And then what kind of camel you're going to buy? Look at the birds. Look at the birds. Do they worry? Yet your heavenly father, he cares for them. And with this great statement, he says, how much more valuable are you than they? 
Like, what is he saying? God loves you. You think he's, if he's going to clothe that little cardinal over there? Or the eagles? He's going to clothe the eagles with victories and glory? You think he's going to do that and he's not going to care for you? He's not going to meet your needs? The love of God is meant, this is why Zephaniah says it com- he quiets you. Because we're so loud. And it's meant to chill out. Don't you know God loves you? Haven't you seen? I put him on the roof. I put him on the roof. Right? That's what the love of Christ does. It helps us when, we, we, when, we're, finally, when we're in the middle of a struggle. When life is not where we thought it was going to be. I didn't get the job. I didn't get to this. It's not where I wanted to be. I don't have as much money as I thought I was. I'm not married. I don't have a kid. When we're disappointed, when we're struggling with, with just issues and the brokenness in the world, the love of God is meant to, to meet us there. Because that's when we feel most unloved, right? When things are a train wreck and we're like, really? Really, God? This? I already had this, this, and this, and now you let this? Right? When it's like setback after setback. Here's what Paul says in Romans about it. We rejoice in our sufferings. How? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And notice this phrase. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And what he's saying is God's love gives us endurance and strength to persevere when we face setback after setback after setback after setback after setback. Right? And it produces character. And this is a hard thing, but have you ever thought that it was, it's God's love that kept you from getting that job? It's God's love that allowed that circumstance because he wants to produce character and hope in something greater. He, he, that, that setback is actually an experience of God's love. And we don't think that way. We think that Lexus with a bow, that's God's love. Right? But that not necessarily. It may be. If you're that husband, we don't like you. Right? <laughs> it's a Kia, we're all right. Buy a Kia with a ribbon. Nobody buys a Kia with a ribbon. Why not, you know? But th- th- that might be God's very love for you. Think about all the setbacks in, in the story of Jesus' birth. Joseph has a plan, a trajectory. <laughs> Boom. Right? Single mom, pregnant, says it's from God. That's a setback. Having to run for your life to Egypt, setback. But maybe God's setback is his preparation, his setup for your comeback. Because Jesus is coming out of Egypt, y'all. Right? It seems like a setback. But he's coming out of Egypt. Right? And his love is behind this struggle. It's, it's, and we always think, oh, this, this must be God punishing me. No, no. It's not God's punishing you. It, this, Romans 5 says it's just preparing you. It's making you more like Jesus. Right? That's, that's what God's love does. When you can get that and, and know that God's love has been poured out in our hearts. God's love help us, helps us to feel comfort when we feel insignificant, when we're alone, when we feel invisible. You've been in middle management for years. You got cut from the no cuts team, right? You, uh, you, you're, you some of you, you finally, you heard that, right? You're like, that was me, right? When you feel like nobody notices me, I'm useless. I, I can't do anything right. I've been told I'm useless. My boss tells me that. My spouse tells me that. My parents tell me that. You feel insignificant, right? You're just a fill in the blank. 
and what the love of God reminds us. Think about this. You think God the Father would put his son on the roof for something that's useless? You really think that? I'm not putting my son up on the, I mean, that's leaves. You think God the Father is put, I'm not dying for leaves. You think God the Father is gonna put his son on the roof for something that's insignificant, that doesn't matter, that's invisible, right? He, he would never do that. You think Jesus in John 17, when he's praying this last prayer, he says, I can't wait for all those who you've called to be with me. I just want all them to be with me. You think Jesus, that's you. You think Jesus is praying for you to be with him because you're not valuable? That you're insignificant? Really? No. Right? You think Jesus right now is interceding on the throne for you and that's what he's doing? He's praying and interceding for his church. You think he's doing that for something that doesn't matter? I can tell you it doesn't. He's not. Right? The love of God reminds us of that when we feel I'm just a the love of God casts out fear. There's no fear in love, right? God's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love. There's no, there's no fear of guilt and shame. There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who think, I've done it. I've sinned 491 times. Jesus says after 490, I'm out, right? There's no running out of God's love. You know, we're, we're at that season, you're like, okay, okay, this is the Christmas budget. Don't go over. And everyone goes over, right? Get shocked on January 8th when that Visa card comes. You're like, we said it was this. And this is not this. Busted the budget. You went over. You can't go over with God's love. It doesn't run out. Does God care? Have I gone too far? When there's that shame from, and guilt from failed first marriage, failed with the kids, you, you're like Michael Scott and you declared bankruptcy, right? Like five of you office fans got that one, right? God busts the budget with Jesus. This is what Romans 8 says. He did not spare his own son. He gave us up for us all. If he did that, how will he not also graciously give us all things? What's his point? I gave my most valuable thing. I got nothing else. I could have given you all the treasures of heaven. I could have given you the universe. I gave you the most valuable thing and I put them right there on the roof because I love you and I want you to know it. That's what the love of God does. The love of God motivates us to do what? To love others. It's a big one for us. Those first ones are internal. They kind of helps us, but it also motivates us to love. Jesus says, this is a new commandment, y'all. Love one another just as I have loved you. And it's easy to love everyone in Christmas until you get to the Christmas dinner and you got the guy over there, you know he's gonna bring up politics. It's a Uncle Charlie, right? He's gonna bring up politics. He's, either, he's gonna do something. Or you're gonna see your cousin who borrowed 400 bucks from you last month and he's got a brand new iPhone and he still ain't paid you back and you're like, right? That's why you don't lend money to family members. Just saying it right now is your application for the day. You're going to see that person who wounded you or hurt you. See, Jesus says, love your brother, love your neighbor, love your enemy. That's so you know it covers everything. That person that when you think about them, you're still mad. He says you love them. That, the love of God, it motivates us to do that. In fact, it helps you to, to meet needs. When you see a need, this is what John says, 
the Apostle John, he says, if you see a brother and sister in need and you have the ability to meet that need and you do not meet that need, then you don't love God and it doesn't abide in you. It's a pretty strong statement. I think about this this morning and I'm telling you, this is what God does to just humble me. So I'm driving in and, and we pull in the gas station real quick and I throw some things out and this guy comes up to me. And he looks a little bit shady, smidge. He says, hey Bubba, can I get a rye? I'm just going to 56 and Waters. I'm like, well, I'm only going to 69th and Waters, so I'm out. And right, so, and I mean, he, and he, he looked moderately safe, probably most serial killers do, I guess, right, but, and so he's like, ah, no problem, man, I'm good, and he's carrying his laundry basket, and he had a backpack, he's like, I, I promise I'm not homeless, I have a job, he's telling me these things, and so I'm like, I, I, can't, I, gotta, I gotta go pastor a church, I can't, I can't help you, all right, and so, I, you know, it's like, and then I, this verse comes to mind, and I'm like, man, I'm like 56 in water, it's like right down here. So I said, hey, buddy. I said, climb in the back. He said, oh, thanks, man. I mean, and, and look, this guy was not going to church. He smelled like last night. He, he, he did. He was not the clean guy of the world. I mean, he was not, you know, he showered and stuff, and he had a house. Dropped him off at his house right there. Off. He was so grateful and so thankful, and I thought, if I got up and preached about the love of God, thinking that if you have the world's goods, just a ride, it's a mile drive, the mile drive. And I, I'm so glad. I, and I felt like, and I told my youngest too, I had in the car. And, and I thought, I told him, I said, sometimes God tells us to do things that we don't want to do. But when we do them, we're glad we did. Right? And it's as simple as that sometimes. The lo- I wouldn't have done that probably if I wouldn't preach on the love of God. <laughs> he, he's lucky he caught me on a Sunday. On a Tuesday, he's out. But that's the, that's the idea. The love of God is not just so we can say, isn't that great? God loves us. The love of Christ compels, sustains. And so when you're, when you're challenged, when you know that, that God does not want you to do this, date this guy, do, continue in this addiction, whatever it is, and you know that, the love of God compels me to say, I have a father who has proved his love. I'm going to trust him even though I want to go over here and do this. That's what the love of Christ does. It tr- I'm going to trust you, God, even though everything in me wants to go over here. I'm going to go over here. That's, that's the kind of thing. And what I want for our church as we celebrate Christmas, right, is to remember God has put his son on the roof for you. He did it because he loved you. And now I want us to be the church, that means the love of Christ compels us to not only love people, but to tell others about the love of Christ. It's part of it. I have been loved and I was a mess. God loves you too. He can, he can right what has been wrong. He can redeem and fix and rescue what is broken. That's what he does. That's what we need to be as a church as we kind of end this year and look to this year. We, and Paul says again, I, we want to know it I want you to know it, and then I want it to compel us. And, and just one simple way for us to do that is this. How do we start? Where do we start? I think we start the way that it starts at the Christian Christmas narratives. I think we start with loving God. The greatest commandment is this, love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then what? Then you love your neighbor as yourself. That, at the Christmas narratives, it starts with people declaring God's excellency and declaring their love and praise for him. Think about all the worship that takes place in the Christmas narratives. 
We sang one earlier. When Mary comes to Elizabeth, my soul magnifies the Lord. Right? The shepherds, they left the baby glorifying God. The angels, glory to God in the highest. The magi, they fall down and worship and offer their treasures. There's so, worship is the starting place and then we go. We love God. We declare his glory. We declare his goodness. We get the love. He gets the glory. That's the point. We get the love and he gets the glory. And so what we're going to do is we're going to remember God's love like the church has been for 2,000 years. And we're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's table. And, and what I want you to remember that as, as these folks kind of hand these elements out to y'all, uh, that what you're going to be holding in your hands are symbols of God's love. Like you're gonna hold some bread, some unleavened bread that, that's been pierced and has holes and has been bruised. It it's, it's represents Jesus' body. He put himself not on the roof on a cross for you because of his love. And you're gonna hold a cup in your hand that pictures the blood of Christ which was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if you are a follower of Christ this morning, we invite you to celebrate these, these elements which picture God's love. And if you're not, I would really invite you to experience God's love for the first time by putting your faith in Christ, right? Just like Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He was, he was lifted up on a cross so whoever believes in him has eternal life. It's just a matter of putting your faith in Christ. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Believe that he died for you, that he was risen again, and he, has, he will forgive your sins if you do that. So I'd invite you to do that this morning. Let me pray, and here's how we're gonna do it. As the men, are, they're gonna pass it out, men and women, they're gonna pass it out. And you just take it, spend some time just during this first song. Ethan, I'll ask you guys to come on up and lead us. And just listen to the lyrics, spend some time thinking about the love of God in Christ. And then when you're ready, at whatever point that is, you can take in your seat right there uh, the bread and the cup. And then we'll stand and we'll sing about God's love with a few more songs. And then we'll go and we'll go love people. So let me pray. Father, I just pray in this time as we think about and remember uh, the love of Christ, that you would just encourage us wherever we're at with your goodness, with your uh, grace, um, that while we were yet sinners, that we were enemies, that we were opposed to you, that you died for us and that you loved us, that you took your beloved and put him on a cross so that we could be your beloved. And so we celebrate that, we remember that, we sing about that this Christmas, because that's what it's all about. It's in Christ's name we pray.